Okay, welcome to Progressive News Network here on Blog Talk Radio. I'm the producer and host, Janine Mala, and we have, I think, a very interesting show for everybody today. Um, if you look at the advert, it seems like the theme is, as I put it before, growing neo-Nazism in the USA. And, you know, a lot of people are talking about white supremacy and the explosive growth especially in the public view since Donald Trump. Um, and, you know, you can say white supremacy and neo-Nazism, but let's just be honest about it. White supremacy is a major theme and tenet of Nazism. Always has been. One of the reasons, believe it or not, that Hitler went after the Jews was because they were considered, and I speak as a Jew, um, they were considered to be um, half-breeds, mixed race, whatever, not white enough, okay? So, again, Hitler borrowed a lot of the ideas and the, the uh, policies and the terminology from Jim Crow. Make no mistake about it. So when I say neo-Nazism, I am talking about white supremacy, period. It's just Nazism gives it a darker... Uh, a darker page because it is darker. Uh, the main difference is that the Nazi war machine was probably more efficient. They murdered more people in a shorter period of time. Okay, they went in, they basically went with the um, industrial version of mass murder, of genocide, whereas the good old boys in the South, they took their time with it, I guess, again. So we're going to be talking about that, and we have a couple of different pieces. First, uh, the founder of Progressive News Network and a dear friend and a wonderful journalist, uh, Rick Stizak, has another very enlightening uh, interview with Professor Wendy Lynn Lee on campus fascism. So we're going to start with that. After that, I have my big story, and, you know, the headline is, No Virginia, borrowing from, you know, yes, yes, Virginia, there is a Santa Claus. My title is, No Virginia, Neo-Nazis are not just joking. They really want to murder you. And after that, we have our conclusion, and then, of course, the jackass report, which I think is really kind of interesting. So we're do this is all about white supremacy and really neo-Nazism, the world's witnessed an explosion of it as Trump's, Donald Trump's vile example made the open expression of what can only be termed Nazism become commonplace, accepted, and most dangerously normalized. And that is the true danger here. The mainstream corporate press at the same time, especially broadcast press, has completely failed to call this danger out. Instead, they aid and abet in the normalization of this civic obscenity. Open white supremacy, neo-Nazism, and again, make no mistake, white supremacy and Nazism are one and the same entity. It's spread to our college campuses as the billionaires funding this dangerous neo-Nazi machine purchase, just purchase college departments with what are called endowments. You can almost see the air quotes. Uh, but these endowments are a little more than college administrations, I'll just say, prostituting themselves for profit. And that results in academic censorship and the closing of important academic departments, which are basically not considered profitable. 
we see the end game of this strategy now infect our K-12 schools as far-right extremists use CRT or critical race theory as the excuse to ban teaching the truth about U.S. history, current events, especially when it comes to systemic racism. And this is a truly dangerous outgrowth. So, again, the first story, an interview of Professor Wendy Lee, Lynn Lee uh, by our founder, Rick Spizak. Professor Lee is the academic that's been making the study of right-wing thugs on campus her goal. She has a very strong perspective on the January 6th insurrection, uh, the congressional investigations, and the trials, which she will discuss with Rick. Professor Lee will also discuss the growing mercenary moves in many college campuses. As, as I said before, these same schools are gutting the humanities and essentially reducing their mission. Oh, dear. Sorry, folks, that was a mistake. She's also mentioned how our campus, I, I'm sorry, so Professor Lee is going to talk about the mercenary moves of these college campuses uh, because these same schools are gutting their humanities and they've reduced their, their academic mission to basically professional level trade schools. And the humanities are important, you know, where, where you study a trade, whether it's a profession or not, or a blue collar trade, you learn a specific set of skills. The humanities are important because they teach you how to critically analyze. And they are incredibly important, even, the, even though they, you can't really put a dollar value on them. Um, so Professor Lee is also going to mention how our campus in upstate Pennsylvania just announced that they're closing multiple departments, including philosophy, physics, and some other what are they called non-performing departments. Okay. Then the big story, so I, I'm, I apologize if I'm kind of repeating things. Um, I'm going to be discussing how the Charlottesville trials are revealing closeted violence, the closeted violence of the right wing uh, using what can only be called very sick humor to create what they believe is plausible deniability uh, regarding their, their treason against democracy itself. They're hiding behind, we were just joking, we were just being satirical. No, you weren't. But we'll be talking about that. And I'm going to be referring, referring to a paper that was presented in these trials. And it's a paper that was co-written by Professor Kathleen Blee and Professor Peter Simi on the true nature of the far right. It's a, we're only going to discuss part of it. It's a long paper, but it's very important. I'll also be mentioning the obvious problems with our, in, well, I won't call it justice system, our injustice system, as reflected by something that we can't avoid this week, the Rittenhouse verdict. And specifically, the behavior of that specific judge when he tossed a few charges that on the surface looked benign, but were possibly key to, a, tossing those charges were key to acquitting Rittenhouse. If those, if those charges, like, uh, illegal possession of a firearm, if they hadn't been tossed, then theoretically Rittenhouse's lawyers could not have made a self-defense um, strategy. So we'll get into that. And in conclusion, I'll mention how this growing Nazism has led to the not-so-thinly-veiled threats against AOC by Congressman Paul Gosar and the likes of his little, and then the jackass report. So with that, and no further ado, I will go to Rick's interview of Professor Wendy Lynn Lee. Enjoy. 
Uh, ladies and gentlemen, I have the great good fortune to be able to talk to Professor Wendy Lynn Lee of Bloomington University, who has been uh, an activist in environmental issues, human rights issues, uh, an educational advocate for a long, long time. And we have been so proud to have her as a guest several times on PNN. Uh, welcome once again, Professor Lee. Uh, if you don't mind, I'm going to call you Wendy, okay? Well, of course. Okay. Um, Professor, the, the reason I first wanted to talk to you was, um, like many uh, thinking, constitutionally alert Americans, I have been appalled by the inaction of the Justice Department when faced with what was basically an armed attack on our Congress and an attempt to thwart the democratic process. Say what you will about the flaws in our, in our electoral system. Uh, it's a system we've been working with for a long time. And to summarily uh, interrupt that process to, uh, to install a strongman dictator is not something that we considered uh, just a normal function. So what, yeah. what was your first <laughs> Uh, understatement to the max. Um, what was your first right? What was your first reaction when you saw what was unfolding on January sixth, almost a year ago? Oh, I, I think I think my reaction was similar to that of of, of many Americans. At least I I hope I was I was stultified. I just, I just, it was hard to even comprehend what I was, was watching. Um, if I were going to strike any object of comparison, I remember, even though the events are of course very different, I was reminded of 9-11 um, and being equally just just kind of stunned and taken aback by the, by the images that I was seeing. I, I had never seen anything like it. Um, and what made January 6th just so, so particularly horrifying to watch was that these were my fellow Americans who were attacking our, the Democratic Republic, um, who were attacking, from my point of view, uh, uh, th this great experiment in self-governance, this experiment in democracy, trying to, to tear it down and replace it with a corrupt authoritarian tyrant. You know, a lot of countries on this planet uh, occurred from accidents of geography, the leftovers of monarchies or religious kingdoms. But this country is among a unique few that really is based on an idea more than geographical or some monarchical uh, pattern of history. So yeah. we're about an idea. And the idea was theoretically that people are capable of ruling themselves that we can have a representative government that responds to the will of the people, the absolute antithesis of mob rule, the antithesis of a criminal oligarchy, and it seems mm -hmm. that now this is up for grabs. Yeah, I, 
I have had recently a, a, a good deal of opportunity to reflect on the importance of, um, of philosophy. Uh, I'm a philosophy professor, and one of the really important influences on on this great experiment called America um, were philosophers like like John Locke, like like Rousseau, um, like like Jefferson, um, whose whose ideas were both compatible and in conflict with one another, but out of which arose this, this incredible idea that was always going to be realized imperfectly and with a tremendous lot of, of struggle. Mm-hmm. But I didn't think I would see it so brittle and potentially easily overthrown in my own lifetime. Uh, You know, uh, a a simultaneous concern of mine was this, and I'm going to want you to reflect on, shall we say, the bottom part of the iceberg just for a minute. You know, we have seen in our short time, in our, say, past 30 years, we have seen law enforcement Uh, have such an acute ear to the ground that they have preemptively interrupted environmental protests. They've Mm -hmm. preemptively interrupted anti-war protests. They've preemptively interrupted ecological protests. Uh, Mm -hmm. No stone has been left unturned. They have arrested activists before they even protested. Mm -hmm. Do you think it is in any way conceivable that the security state was unaware of what was in the offing on January 6th? I, I don't know the answer to that question um, as, a, as a matter of empirical fact, but I, I think that we can reasonably venture this much, that it seems it seems unlikely that at least – some number of empowered agents around then President Trump did not know what was in the offing. And when you consider the security state and the the lines of communication between the, the security state and the militarization of our streets um, and the, uh, the military, the security state that is also the surveillance state. Right. It, it is hard to imagine at this point that we lacked intelligence about what was likely to occur on the sixth, and and the hitch the the hitch you hear in my voice though is also this. I think that there were a number of pundits like Steve Bannon, for example, who were telling us what they were planning to do, and there was no intelligence required to discover their intentions. 
<laughs> right? Yeah, I mean, all you had to do was was tune into Bannon. Or he he reiterated much, some of these claims yesterday. Um, yeah. You know, uh, they are we taking had, down. They are taking down the Biden administration. That was what he told us yesterday. Right. Yeah. Which is right. Bannon, just another version of Bannon's claim that. Right, that 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 they're that they're going to take down the the state, um, you know, in its in its current incarnation, and it, and of course it's not just Bannon. There are, there are so right. so many Marjorie Marjorie Taylor Greene, Jack Posobiec. Um, um, I think I think among the most dangerous uh, is is actually Charlie Kirk, right, who sits on. Uh, considerable resources at this point from his perch in Texas and has considerable influence, thanks, I think, to Koch brother and other money over the Republican Party and is deeply committed to both Trump, uh, the Trump cult of personality and the big lie. So, you know, maybe there were surveillance that provided intelligence about what was going to happen on the 6th, but I don't honestly know that we needed it. I think you make a good point there. My my the reason I wanted to pursue that question was we've heard from Ed Snowden about the thoroughness of the penetration of all communications, especially electronic yeah. communication. And when you take into consideration that to put it simply, these are not the brightest bulbs in the lamp. And they don't hide themselves very well. In fact, they carry guns openly in public and, and hold public meetings and communicate over the Internet, et cetera, et cetera, et cetera. Mm-hmm. So the threats out there, we know that. The, the thing that I wanted to point at next was the awful timidity of our legislative officers to take mm-hmm. any kind of serious action not not just about those people in the street, but the travelers that were working with them inside congressional offices. Mm-hmm. Because yeah. and, and this still was, are. <laughs> exactly, they are still there, and uh, you know, I'm 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 hesitant to say, you know, they're they're standing by while while more and more ho- holes are being drilled in the hull of the ship of state. But I can't mm-hmm. see any other analysis. I think that it is folly to believe anything other than that. We, it's as if there are two states in some sense, in some important sense. Mm-hmm. There's, there's the Biden administration and the functions of state that are normalized or at least as normalized as as we've seen in a while given the chaos to which we have been subjected but then then there's this other state the the trump state and i think the best way to characterize it is as an ongoing coup maybe we want to think this ended on the sixth but it's perfectly clear that it did not end on the 6th and that the orchestrators of that coup carry on uh, as if they were functionaries of the Trump state and 
are really just awaiting his reinstatement. And if that has to wait until 2024, then it does. But they will see it as a reinstatement, whether it's, whether or not um, it is a, a re-election of Trump. Right. So the coup never ended. And the Trump state still exists. You know, I I have to wonder, and again, this is pure speculation on my part, but we know what I'm going to call the inertia of the American public, uh, the failure to engage in the democratic process. We see it from Mm -hmm. voting. We see it to participation on all levels of government. I have to wonder what portion of that, uh, uh, that attacking force was paid mercenaries, uh, people who were on a payroll to do those things. The only thing that argues against it, in my mind, was that the absolute and utter failure once they took the Congress building, because they did, they yeah. absolutely had control of it. But And then they didn't. That's right, and then they didn't. I am generally highly resistant um, to conspiracy theories, or I could put that differently. I have a very, um, I, I want to see evidence. Sure. I think we can, I think that we can certainly say this much. There was clearly considerable coordination among militia groups like the Proud Boys, like the three percenters, um, like, um, um, the like the Oath Keepers and a number of other smaller satellite groups. Uh, they're talking to each other. And, I, I mean, again, mostly in broad daylight, right? Just, yep. you know, on yep. Polar, yep. on on Getter, on Gab. You know, I, I don't think there was anything actually big, any big secret going on with this. We just weren't apparently paying much attention to those sources or not taking them seriously. But I don't. I think that the I think that Trump's cult of personality I think that's why we have to call it a cult of personality. I don't think they needed to be paid because I think that they are so deeply persuaded. I, I think this is truly far more horrifying than paid mercenaries. Paid mercenaries will not act unless you pay them. But devotees of a cult will follow their leader over a cliff. So I think it is actually a far more terrifying prospect for future acts of violence against the democracy that they did not have to be paid. Okay, let me ask one more related question. As you said, we see continued activity from aggressive gerrymandering to uh, capture of institutions, of uh, secretaries of state, uh, legislative bodies are enacting laws to limit voting access. Um, mm-hmm. Clearly, uh, this is an attack by other means. It, it may not be armed at this moment, but it is certainly legislated. It's certainly in law. And we see, you know, uh, clearly uh, rational behavior is not necessarily on the agenda. The the, the this incredible stand to try to politicize science, to politicize mm-hmm. uh, 
you know, facts on the ground. And, you know, yeah. these people who will deny, 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 deny until they're ready to, for the respirator when they dash to the hospital. So, yeah. you know, the underlying hypocrisy is is available, but unfortunately it doesn't do us any good. Um, how do you see any route to trying to capture back the electoral process? Because it looks like, looks to me, like it's going to be completely captured and we'll never see an honest vote in 22 or 24. I think that there's a lot of room to be terrified about this surreptitious, um, just, I, 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 I'm looking, it's scummy. I, I just, you know, this, this is the, the, the theft of a fundamental civil right, the right to vote and the, all of the efforts to make it difficult or to make it impossible. And that there, that these efforts are so flagrantly aimed at keeping um, brown people and uh, working class people and elderly people and students from voting. Um, it is just, a, it is a debauchery of, of the democracy. In some ways, one, one would prefer, I think, even an armed insurrection at the Capitol over the debauchery of the vote, because what's happening to the vote happens state by state over, over a longer period of time with a lot of, um, a lot of deception and a lot of concealment, right? It's the kind of thing, it's like the rug is being pulled out from under us, but slowly enough that until it dumps us over that cliff, we won't know that the rug is gone. Uh, you know, I was going to say, it's almost kind of like the Biden administration thinks they are opposed by Republicans like maybe Eisenhower, when in fact yeah. They're, yeah. They're, they're opposite who, who will give no quarter, who will vote for nothing, yeah. even to benefit their own constituents in the face of lies and continued yeah. denial of re open, obvious reality. Um, these guys aren't 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 playing by the rules. When is the Democratic Party going to notice this? I'm I am I'm puzzled. Yeah, it, it is. It, it, on the one hand, it's as if we see in the Biden administration this this striving for a kind of wish fulfillment, right? If we 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 wish sanity and reasonableness and um, civility into being, if we just keep trying and wishing and wishing and wishing, then we will wish it into being. We will wish this unicorn into being. But on the other hand, it's like, did we learn nothing from Nixon? Did we yeah. learn nothing about just how vile and how dirty politics could become. I mean, and even the Nixon administration seems relatively quaint 
right, Watergate seems a little a little quaint and a little come see come saw compared to January sixth. Right. Right. Uh, I'm going to ask you to speculate one more time because, after all, you're a philosopher, and you look at the long curve of, of history. Do you think there's any chance of real prosecution of the ringleaders of of the power behind this January 6th revolt? I think that depends on the elections in 2022. I think that if the elections go to um, the Democrats, right, if the Dems stay in power, then it will simply buy us more time. And then my answer to your question will be, I don't know, because I don't know. I still am not sure they have it in them. I don't know. I just don't know. All right, I can hope, but I don't know. But if those elections go to the Republicans, as seems more likely to be the case, then it's done. Then there will be no prosecution. There will be no committee. Yeah. It will be dissolved. Well, uh, I, I'm, I'm, uh, I take Ed Snowden's word that every communication is monitored. I, in my estimation, believe that not only did they know, but they were fine with it. I, that's, that's my honest take. So that, I'm afraid that uh, 2022 is going to signal the death knell of any kind of honest investigation. And that, uh, as they said in TV, woe is us. Um, But let me talk about another topic that uh, sadly isn't uh, uh, much much happier news. Um, You know, I I would love to have you tell me, well, Richard, you know, there's there's a committee of historians and philosophers that are coming together to discuss this. and They'll be publishing papers and taking to the press to... uh, Talk about how we're witnessing the slow motion death of, of uh, our representative democracy. But I'm afraid you probably, they don't have any more nerve than anybody else. So that's probably not going to happen. But that brings me to philosophy. You have been helping young people. You've been helping students understand the breadth of philosophical discussion here in not only Western civilization, but global civilization. You mm-hmm. helped people understand the progress of human rights, human thinking, human philosophy, and God bless you for it. But I understand that the citadel of philosophy and anthropology and have, physics and and physics, because of course, who needs physics? You said over over the internet connection. Um, what can you tell us about what's going on? And and I'm sure it's not just your university. It's other universities as well. So, you know, there's actually a, a, a pretty intimate connection between our previous conversation and this one because <laughs> the the death of the democracy and the, the demise of higher education in the United States are two heads of the same of the same monster Um, and they will be mutually reinforcing and they will be mutually destructive. So Bloomsburg 
um, right? So this is a state school in Pennsylvania. Um, over the last year, um, our chancellor, Chancellor um, Greenstein, um, my argument is that he saw an opportunity in the chaos created by the pandemic to begin to uh, put put into motion uh, a vision that he has for the state system of higher education in Pennsylvania that he, I believe, had had even coming in as chancellor. And that vision was to consolidate a number of the universities, there were 14 in total, but to consolidate, and this is the horrendous language that we now use, to right-size the system in order to effectively convert it into technical schools, um, trade schools, um, schools that will provide educated labor to the Commonwealth. Um, I mean, after all, the children of the wealthy can still study liberal arts at UPenn and Duquesne and Pitt, but the children of the working class in Pennsylvania, well, they have another destiny. Their lot is to be the workers, the employees of the children whose parents can afford to send them to UPenn and Pitt and Duquesne. So we are undergoing this, we could call it a transformation. I think I would call it a monstrous transmogrification, um, where Bloomsburg is now bound at the hip to Lockhaven and Mansfield. Um, my expectation is that Mansfield, um, the most financially beleaguered of the three and the smallest um, will simply die. And just this past week, um, the chancellor apparently uh, has ordered our provost at Bloom to simply end philosophy and the philosophy major at Bloom and the physics major, and the anthropology major, and German. Now, I think this is catastrophic for the university. Philosophy is a core humanities. It is a core liberal arts discipline. I, there is no university without a philosophy major. I think that's a full stop. I think there is no university without physics, and I think that's full stop. And their argument is that we do not put enough butts in seats. That we do not have high enough enrollment. And I think it's important to point out that that argument has nothing to do with the quality of education that we offer. It has nothing to do with whether our students go on to have really good lives and contribute um, because they're educated citizens to both the Commonwealth and to the country. Um, this is a this is an abysmal state of affairs for us and for education across the country because a democracy cannot survive without educated citizens and what we offer in philosophy are the critical thinking skills 
are like the Swiss army knife of all of the other disciplines. We are core to the humanities, and we are core to imagination, and therefore to art, and therefore to any country that's going to be worth its own survival. So this bludgeoning of our disciplines is intimately connected to January 6th because the people who stormed the Capitol are people who, had they been better educated in ideas, in philosophy, in critical thinking, I think would not have done what they did and could not have been led to the sedition that they committed. Let me ask you a practical uh, fact. Now, are, are they going to conclude these departments at the end of the spring term? Or is it a sudden shutdown as of the new year? So our department will still stand even though our major has been annihilated. And our department, we have, the way my department chair puts it, I think is really good. We have been forced into a shotgun marriage with political science and history on all three campuses. So what was a small philosophy department of five at Bloom is now a large and unwieldy department of about 30, including the historians and the political scientists. Now, to be... To be clear, I've got I got nothing against political science and history. Um, those are all my colleagues, right? And I care for them as persons and colleagues as such. But no one wanted to be forced into this shotgun marriage. Um, and how this is even going to work without a philosophy major, we don't even, I don't know. I, 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 we have majors who are freshmen to whom I am devoted and responsible. And I have promised them, each of them individually, that I will not fail them. I will not let them down, that we will find a way. But we can recruit no new majors. And that will mean for us, right, at least until, say, I retire in a few more years, that I will effectively be, we're a service department. We will be a handmaiden teaching medical ethics to nursing students and business ethics to the finance students. And I, I don't have anything against the nursing students, but I don't want to be a handmaid to the nursing college either. Well, uh you know, they, they tried dispensing with the arts and the humanities in um, grade school. Of, of course, not at the cost of critical race theory. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, you don't want to even get me started on that. <laughs> the, the You know, the curiosity. I'm going to teach that next semester. I'm going to teach critical race theory in one of my classes next semester. Good for you. Good for oh, you. Oh, you bet. You. <laughs> you bet. Derek, now, now, here we go. <laughs> it, 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 it is so symptomatic of 
of the ill education of so many Americans. Whenever one of these advocates who, who, who are advocates only by virtue of the fact that they are opposed to something that doesn't exist, every time I've heard them ask, so what is this thing that you're against? They cannot yeah. articulate anything. They, of we course, because in large part, they can't say, because you're attacking me as a racist. They, that's, that's the one thing they cannot say. Yeah. Yeah, I I was at a school board meeting last night of my local high school, and I went just to be an observer um, with a friend um, because we knew that there was going to be a cadre of anti-critical race theory protesters, and indeed there were, and their spokeswoman, um, she was polite, but... Wow what she had to say about critical race theory was nonsense. It was nonsense. It was material that she said that she had um, culled from the Daily Wire, Ben Shapiro. <laughs> yes. Uh, quite, she did quite not know. Yeah, she 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 did not know, and I I know I risk sounding arrogant, um, and I don't mean it that way, but you know I could I I couldn't help but just sit there and and think you do not know because you do not want to know because you are afraid that what you will discover is that systemic racism systemic racism in the United States is true. That, that 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 this exists, that it exists in the prison system, that it exists in in what we're doing to the franchise, that it exists in higher education, that it exists in public ed- education, that it is, it exists. You don't, you cannot face it because then you would have to change, and you don't want to change, and that's it, and that's why you are pushing back so hard. And I, like. I started to feel angry, and then I sort of just felt pity for her because that kind of willful ignorance seems to have very little remedy. You know, I think one of the underlying issues, again, another one of those things that cannot be discussed, is I I think there is a recognition that when the, the racial equations change, as they are growing and involving too, they don't want to be treated the way they've treated black and brown people. I think that's that's down there I think in that's the kernel a, of it. Yeah, I think that's a really good piece of insight. Yep, yep, yep. Yeah, yeah. I, I think there's a lot of fear. <laughs> uh, professor, thank you so very much for your time. Uh, the university may not have any recognition of how valuable the fruits of philosophy are. But I can tell you, talking to you is always such a pleasure. Thank you for your time. You are most welcome. Have an excellent evening. You too, my friend. Bye-bye. Bye-bye.
Okay, folks, so that was our report from our founder, Rick Spizak, as he interviewed Professor Wendy Lynn Lee. It was truly insightful. And on that note, we're going to continue this theme throughout the program. So a lot of the things that Rick and Dr. Lee were talking about dealt with not only the the uh, existence of systemic racism, but I would say, you know, I would take it a little further than what Rick and Dr. Lee said. I would say that a lot of people that, for instance, are fighting what they perceive to be critical race theory, I think they're projecting their own fears and sense of guilt onto those that they deem the, the alien other. Uh, essentially, I think that these, these racists, if you will, believe, they're terrified that if there is an acknowledgement of systemic racism as true, because it is, and an acknowledgement of systemic uh, added onto it, because there's, I really believe there's a hierarchy of bigotry in this country. You know, racism is the most virulent, I be, this is my opinion, I believe, and the black community certainly gets the worst of it all. But then it's followed by religious bigotry for people that are considered non-Christian, as well as systemic misogyny, uh, hatred against the LGBTQI community, and so on and so forth. And I think at the core of this, and this is why the GOP and, people, and monsters like Tucker Carlson keep pushing fear, because these people are terrified that once this is acknowledged, the truth about systemic racism and all these other bigotries are acknowledged as true, and there begins a process, say, of reparation, they are terrified that the very people that have been victimized by systemic racism and other bigotries will take their revenge and basically dole out to white Christians what they've been dishing out to the rest of us. And they're terrified of revenge. And the fact is this, in terms of fighting white supremacy and other bigotries, none of us are talking about revenge. We're talking about justice. But you have to realize that the people that really uh, refuse to acknowledge these bigotries, refuse to acknowledge the truth about uh, systemic racism, systemic misogyny, systemic religious bigotry, so on and so forth, these are very immature people, dangerously so. And that, again, my opinion for whatever it's worth. So let's move on to our next story. This is a piece from Slate, and it ran November 11th, and it was written by Dahlia Lithwick, who is a wonderful journalist. And it's about the trial of the Charlottesville, I would call them domestic terrorists, because that's what they are. And uh, the headline is, Why the Nazis are Treating Their Trial in Charlottesville Like a Joke. It's part of the strategy, perhaps even the ideology. And one of the things I'm going to say is, one, one thing is I'm glad that Slate and Dahlia Lithwick call these people out as Nazis, because that, that's what they are. So if you've been following the Charlottesville trials, you know, they, these are the people that uh, basically marched in Charlottesville. They were, these were white supremacists and neo-Nazis who were protesting the idea that uh, statues of Confederate leaders were being removed or challenged. And these are the people that had tiki torches, um, you know, basically using the, Nazi, the old Nazi salutes, 
chanting, Jews will not replace us, uh, screaming blood and soil, which is an old Nazi chant. You, you don't have to take my word for it. You can look it up. It's right there. Um, you know, they were making jokes about throwing Jews in ovens, and they were making jokes about uh, lynching blacks and so on and so forth. And, you know, 30, I think it's 33-year-old Heather Heyer was murdered. Uh, I think it was by J, uh, a white supremacist named James Fields. And so now these other people are finally coming to trial, even though that happened in 2017. And I remember I wrote a piece about it. Uh, but the fact is these people finally come to trial. And if you tuned into the trial, you would be a little confused according to Dahlia Lithwick because you, it's unclear as to whether you're watching an actual trial or as she puts a quote, an elaborate performance piece. So let's move on with this. There's a federal civil trial uh, of 20 alleged organizers of the Charlottesville 2017 Unite the Right rally. And of these 20 people, there are white supremacists. Some of these idiots are representing themselves in court. Um, She goes on to say, you've heard white supremacist Chris Cantwell, who's also known as the crying Nazi. kind of picture himself as a purveyor of a podcast product. Mr. Cantwell cited Hitler's uh, memoir, Mein Kampf, and he used the N-word. And then Mr. Cantwell went on to say, as he was, I guess, testifying that he, quote, described himself as a professional entertainer, talented and good-looking, end quote. And that's according to uh, Yahoo News. And part of his opening statement, Cantwell uh, basically let the jury know he he had done some stand-up comedy, according to Vice.com. And then he turned to the jury and said, quote, I hope you can all become diehard fans, and together we can save the country. Now, now if you're wondering, why are these white supremacists and neo-Nazis mixing what is what they think is entertainment with a court proceeding, what possible, what could they gain by that? This goes to the very uh, main strategy, the core strategy of, I won't even call them white supremacists, I'll just lump it together, Nazis, neo-Nazis, their core strategy. And they're hiding behind, <coughs> in my opinion, coded language uh, and the idea that we were just joking, plausible deniability make it harder to actually prosecute them and to allow them to kind of hide their true motives. And their true motive is they want to create a genocide of all minorities, period. This is just as dangerous as the Nazis of the Third Reich under Hitler. Make no mistake about it. They're not as well organized yet. So Cantwell went on after his opening statement. He explained that, quote, Um, he considered this to be a spoken word performance, you know, and I take that kind of thing seriously, especially once I found out that people were going to be able to listen. I saw this as a tremendous opportunity, both because of the cause at hand, because I, I knew the world was listening. Now, it should also be mentioned that Cantwell is currently incarcerated for an extortion incident that is unrelated to the charges he's facing right now. And in 
in the Charlottesville trial, and that's according to NBCNews.com. But Cantwell, along with a, a, a group of fellow white supremacist neo-Nazi prison inmates, would watch, guess who, Tucker Carlson's show to help them prepare for trial. And that was according to BuzzFeed News. So according to Dahlia Lipsky, I'm just going to read the, the, the uh, quote, quote, indeed, quote, a central component of the white supremacist endgame here lies not in prevailing at trial, but in using the trial to feel famous and to become more so. Now, there was an article in the Washington Post that kind of illustrated this a little more, um, noting that, quote, some of the defendants have been ousted from social media, such as Facebook and the dating site OkCupid. But in this courtroom, they found a new platform to amplify their racist views put on performances they boast about on podcasts, radio shows, in live during the trial chats, and to attack their opponents, end quote. Um, Oren Siegel of the Anti-Defamation League um, explained to the Washington Post, quote, this is the Star Wars bar scene of extremism in that courtroom, and they know who's watching, end quote. Now, another one of these defendants, Richard Spencer, who's been an alt-right neo-Nazi instigator for some time now. You know, he, I believe he was a, uh, one of the founders of the Proud Boys, actually. Spencer already testified that, quote, the use of torchlight to the Nazi chants and Hitler's symbi- symbology and the three and the comments about gassing people. Let me start over again. So Richard Spencer testified during this trial the following things. He testified that, one, the the use of torchlight, two, the Nazi chants of Hitler's symbology, and three, the comments about gassing people and portable ovens are all, quote, a subcultural thing that's being outlandish and stupid. Now, for those of you that don't know much about the Holocaust, um, you can actually go to Anti-Defamation League or the Holocaust Museum, but you can also read... Um, the story of uh, Elie Wiesel that he wrote of his own experiences as a child during the Holocaust, and it's called Night. And the fact is, yes, a lot of people, especially Jews, were killed in uh, gas chambers, or they were shot or worked to death, but some of them weren't even killed before they were just tossed into the crematorium. Let that sink in. So joking about joking about shoving Jews in ovens is certainly not a joke. It is a very real threat. In my opinion, that we were only joking crap. It's an attempt to gaslight people that don't know much about the history of the Holocaust or the history of Jim Crow or slavery. Don't believe it. This is very politicized hate speech. Um, and what's happening is listeners are going to hear hours and hours of racist slurs and threats. And what these white supremacists and neo-Nazi thugs will attempt to dox, in other words, expose the, the, the uh, home addresses and other identifying information of anti-racist organizers that are named in the proceedings. And 
while, according to the Washington Post, quote, neo-Nazi fans celebrated in far-right chat rooms. Okay? And this is about these neo-Nazi fans trolling the court. Um, and this is not funny. Uh, there was another defendant named Michael Hill who testified last week. And this is Mr. Hill's exact words under oath. Mr. Hill said that he, he called himself, quote, a white supremacist, a racist, an anti-Semite, a homophobe, a xenophobe, an Islamophobe on the stand, uh, then called, and then Mr. Hill called into, end quote, and then Mr. Hill called into a far-right radio show um, to let listeners know that he was, quote, very pleased to share his testimony, knowing the court was a public forum where a lot of people were listening. Okay, this is all about pushing their cause. And, you know, once again, I can't help thinking the judge should be a little stricter on instructions and not let these these people clown. So how do these people build these these neo-Nazis, white supremacists, how do they build their, I guess, audience or their brand, which is a sick way of putting it? Um, they think they're being entertaining. Another is to be funny, okay? Uh, you know, once again, how many of you in the past have heard people that claim they're not racist make jokes about the N-word or make jokes about throwing Jews in ovens and so on and so forth? It's not funny. Those aren't jokes. Those are a threat. Make no mistake about it. Uh, another one of the defendants is a man well-known to the ADL, Matthew Heimbach. He is the founder of the Neo-Nazi Traditionalist Worker Party. Okay. And he knows how this, this nonsense works. In one court exchange, quote, uh, according to theguardian.com, Mr. Heimbach, quote, cheerfully described the alt-right leader, Richard Spencer, as bougie saying, quote, I kind of always viewed you as a bit of a dandy, end quote. And then Spencer answered back, quote, did you ever see me wear boat shoes, end quote. And the line after that the author wrote, good fun all around. Cantwell, one of the defendants, uh, asked Heimbach, another defendant, to tell his, quote, favorite Holocaust joke. Keep in mind, the Holocaust, the Nazi genocide machine killed, no, murdered, 11.5 million people in a few short years, factory style. And of that 11.5, the largest group were Jews, some 6 million. There's nothing funny about it. But this is the gaslight defense. You know, though we were only joking. We were just being ironic. It's satire. Newsflash, it isn't. <clears throat> and then, of course, the most famous defense that Lithwick talked about, the author, that they were just trying to, quote, Trigger the liberal snowflakes, end quote. Well, this, I, I would like to remind these Nazi bastards, you get enough liberal snowflakes together, and it's a blizzard that will bury them. How about that? You know, I take this personally because I lost family in the Holocaust. Not a lot, but I still did. And these people, it, it takes a special seriously sick type of decadence and evil to celebrate joking about 
of genocide. There's nothing funny about it. And anybody who fails to see the evil in a genocide or joking about it, there's something really wrong with them. Now, Richard Spencer testified further that the use of torchlight, the Nazi chants and Hitler's symbology, as I've read before, the comments about gassing people and, quote, portable ovens are, again, this subculture, quote, subcultural thing of being outlandish and stupid, end quote. No, Mr. Spencer, it's not about being stupid. It's about being a, an evil, racist, fascist that wants to subvert democracy itself. It's about being part of a genocidal movement that is pure evil. There's nothing, there's nothing stupid about it. There's nothing funny about it. So Heimbach, again, one of the defendants again, um, explained, you know, that the more people react against this, the bigger these people think they win. Quote, they absolutely fell for it. Heimbach out of the media in his testimony, according to Guardian.com. So this is their joke here. They're, they're explaining that we did, as neo-Nazis and white supremacists, they're trying to hide behind that plausible deniability that this is just joking. It's just satire. It's just being ironic. No, it's not. It is a very real set of threats. And it's not even thinly veiled. How anyone could joke about murdering somebody else because you dislike that group in the most vicious manner possible. And this is truth. The idea that the Nazis sometimes tossed even children and babies directly into the crematorium while they were still living. This is what they're joking about, people. You need to understand this. And this is not only documented by the Holocaust Museum, I urge you to read Elie Wiesel's um, Nobel, read his book titled Night. He documented it. He lived through it. Okay. And Wiesel himself was a, the 1986 winner of the Nobel Peace Prize. So I urge you to read it. Getting back to this. So, after these defendants, these Nazi defendants, tried to turn the trial into a circus, the prosecution did something very smart. They brought in um, these two professors, um, basically Peter Simi, who is excuse me, an associate professor of sociology at Chapman University and fellow sociologist Kathleen Bleed. And they produced a 63-page report for integrityfirstforamerica.org. And, and this was introduced on Thursday, day 14 of the trial. And this really clobbered these Nazis because these two professors have studied not only the nature of white supremacists and neo-Nazi groups, but the tactics they employ to evade prosecution, such as using coded language and hiding behind this alleged humor. And this, this particular study was very damning, okay? So the 63-page report, it really demonstrated that defendants in the trial 
had engaged, quote, in coordinated efforts to obscure their real intentions by hiding behind, one, claims of humor, two, coded speech, and three, other various rhetorical tricks, end quote. And these two researchers, they actually went through thousands of what are called discord messages, as well as defendants' emails, and they concluded, yes, white, white supremacism is a, viol, quote, is a violent racist ideology rooted in anti-Semitism, hostility toward immigrants, minorities, and feminism. And it goes on to say that, quote, yes, white supremacism also uses new technologies and coded doublespeak, and that white supremacists engage in what they characterize as front stage and backstage behavior, end quote. And so Professor Peter Simme from Chapman University testified further. Now, keep in mind, Professor Simme at Chapman University, that's the same university that Trump lawyer John Eastman worked at for a while as well. And Eastman was the architect of the dubious pseudo-legal argument for the insurrection. So Simi testified that, quote, people present themselves differently when they're seeking to make an impression on others than they do in private, um, end quote. And he went on to report and testify that, quote, yes, white supremacy encourages and celebrates violence, end quote. Simi also testified that white supremacists, quote, cultivate plausible deniability by deploying a variety of linguistic winks and tricks, end quote. And then Professor Simi went on to demonstrate that by talking about uh, the neo-Nazi uh, publication Daily Stormer. Andrew Anglin, one of the defendants, is the creator and editor of Daily Stormer, and it is, it is a Nazi publication. <clears throat> and according to Daily Stormer's style guide, um, Stormer explained that, you know, a lot of people aren't comfortable with material that is too directly vitriolic raging or hatred that is non-ironic. Um, and so the Stormer's style guide went on to say, quote, the undoctrinated should not be able to tell if we are joking or not. Okay. There should also be a conscious awareness of mocking stereotypes of hateful racists. And this goes on to say, uh, for example, um, you know, Anglin explained that, you know, it's like self-deprecating humor, like the, the idea of being a racist, making fun of a stereotype of racist. So to prove that they don't take themselves real seriously, but it's also a ploy. Um, to go on with what Anglin said, quote, this is obviously a ploy, and I actually do want to gas kikes, but that's neither here nor there. Uh, for those of you that are unaware, the term kike is a slur against Jews. It's the equivalent to Jews that the N-word is to the black community. Andrew Anglin um, wrote also that, quote, it's illegal to promote violence on the Internet. At the same time, it's totally important to normalize the acceptance of violence as an eventuality inevitability. Okay. Keep in mind, Anglin is the Daily Stormer, basically. Uh, Anglin went on to advise that, quote, whenever someone does something violent, it should be made light of, laughed at, end quote. Now, Professor Simeon Blee explained that, quote, in our opinion, readers would have understood that such use of humor was intended to normalize, approve of, and encourage violence without explicitly promoting it. 
That's very damning. So basically it instigates, it incites, not only incites violence, but it normalizes it. But they have enough plausible deniability to say, well, we didn't tell them to do this. We didn't tell them to be violent against this group. We didn't tell them to commit uh, hate hate crimes. That's the game that these these neo-Nazis are playing. And, you know, according to Dahlia Lithwick of Slate, Simi's testimony was very devastating. Um, and, you know, Simi explained that using as many academic terms as he could, quote, the degree to which the performance artistry of the white supremacists is not accidental. Quote, it's deliberate stagecraft constructed to promote both violent spectacle and plausible deniability, end quote. So he's calling them out on their lives. Now, there was an attorney that was representing other neo-Nazi um, defendants, namely there was an attorney named James Kolenick who represented Jason Kessler, Nathan Domingo, and the hate group known as Identity Europa. So attorney Kolenick tried to get Simi to testify to the idea that all free speech is protected, and Simi disagreed. And then Kolenick tried to, attorney Kolenick tried to get Simi, Professor Simi to testify that he could not be a good witness because he didn't have, he didn't show any neutrality to white supremacy. And what Professor Simi did was really, really brilliant. He said, yes, he's a researcher, and he compared white supremacy and neo-Nazism to a cancer. And he explained that his cancer researchers are interested, not just in researching cancer, but helping prevent its spread, that he's capable of doing the research on violent white supremacy, on neo-Nazism, and he doesn't have to feel neutral about it. And Attorney Kolnick was not happy that Professor Simi was comparing white supremacy and neo-Nazism to cancer, because it's accurate. So then, going a little further, Defendant Richard Spencer. Okay, again, Proud Boys. Um, Spencer was kind of bragging about his, his uh, his state as a celebrity, if you will. Okay. Um, and Chris Cantwell, another defendant, asked Simi that, you know, how dare he offer an opinion as to whether Cantwell was joking in his tweets. And Professor Simi just said, he just explained that he's not an expert on whether or not Cantwell or these other people were funny, but he was an expert on the use of coded language to, in coded language, in other words, to hide criminal intent. That's what we're really talking about. We are dealing with white supremacists and neo-Nazis that are using coded language and other rhetorical tricks, including alleged humor, to hide their criminal premeditated intent. And their criminal premeditated intent to commit hate crimes, to commit genocide, possibly. Um, so, you know, Professor Simi really shut them down. But I want our listeners to understand that this is, uh, this is like a cancer and that white supremacy and neo-Nazism are one and the same. And when you see especially young people, especially young men, young white men, thinking this is just a joke, it's not funny, or maybe your neighbor thinks 
racist, humorous, funny, you need to shut them down. Because while they have free speech rights, so do you. And you have a right to shame them. Because, again, there's nothing funny about this. And these groups are trying to, and they're being successful, they're trying to desensitize and thus normalize the idea of hate crimes against communities of color, against religious minorities, uh, against feminists, against the LGBTQIA community. And they're using these rhetorical devices and this coded language to hide their criminal intent to commit hate crimes. That's it. They're busted. So it was an interesting read. So I looked at the report that was done by Professor Kathleen Blee and Professor Peter Simme. Let me give you a little background on both of them. So Kathleen Blee is Distinguished Professor of Sociology and the Betty Jane Ralphie Bailey Dean of the Keith P. Dietrich School of Arts and Sciences and the College of General Studies at the University of Pittsburgh. She specializes in social movements, including racist, anti-Semitic, and right-wing movements, racial violence, and microsociology. Her curriculum vitae was actually attached to the study. It's in Appendix A, if you care to look it up. Peter Simme is an associate professor in the Department of Sociology at Chapman University. He studied extremist groups for more than 20 years, conducted interviews and observation with a range of violent gangs and political extremists. His curriculum vitae is also attached to the study in Appendix B. They were paid to do the study. I'm not going to hide that. Um, excuse me. Uh, uh, I lost my place here, folks. Okay, just give me a second. There it is. Professor Blee and Professor Simi each received $30,000 in compensation for the time creating this report. They were retained as expert witnesses for plaintiffs um, to, you know, use their expertise to help demystify the white supremacist neo-Nazi movement. Um, and to determine whether the defendants were using tools and tactics um, of the white supremacist neo-Nazi movement, if, you know, in terms of their planning and implementing the events, you know, of uh, 2017, you know, Charlottesville. And their findings were, I just looked at, you know, part of it. Their findings were uh, summarized, basically. Um, they did look at a variety of different types of facts and data, and those sources are identified in the footnotes to the report. The sources are also identified in Appendix C, so if you want to look this up, you are more than um, welcome to do so. Uh, there's also communications on Discord produced in the litigation, and they reviewed using the search terms identified um, throughout this case. Summary of conclusions, and this is Again, it, it may sound redundant, but it really, you know, really gets it together here. So, regarding the Charlottesville, the deadly Charlottesville protests, the Nazi march in Charlottesville in August of 2017, they made the following conclusions, and I'm just going to quote, quote, the white supremacist movement in the United States has consistently utilized, supported, and glorified violence as a strategy to promote its message and secure white supremacy. Okay. 
Defendants were active in and knowledgeable about the culture and networks of the white supremacy movement prior to UTR, the Unite the Right rally. The Unite the Right rally was organized to promote the agenda of the white supremacist movement. To organize the Unite the Right, defendants used the cultural symbols, rituals, slogans, language, and references to historical figures that are the hallmarks of the white supremacist movement. Defendants shaped and made use of white supremacist culture and networks to recruit participants and to plan and execute the Unite the Right. And finally, the coordinated race-based violence facilitated and committed by defendants at Unite the Right is emblematic of white supremacist uh, movement tactics. Okay? So I'm going to go down now and I'm going to describe what they consider um, white supremacist movement exhibit. They're, they're <clears throat> these two professors were able to identify a set of core characteristics <clears throat> to the white supremacist movement, white supremacist neo-Nazis. And they explained that the modern WSM or white supremacist movement in the U.S. is described um, by four historic branches. There's the KKK, or the Ku Klux Klan, that's one. Number two, Christian identity sex. Three, neo-Nazis, and four, white power skinheads. And they acknowledge even though the branches have some different ideological emphasis, uh, it all reflects roots in the historic KKK and U.S. neo-Nazism. In other words, like I said, it's all the same. It brings it together. And that they all embrace and defend violence as a tactic to basically reach the society where the white race is completely dominant. Now, the KKK is the oldest and most influential branch of the WSM white supremacist movement, uh, starting with just after the Civil War. But the Klan's not singular. <clears throat> it has multiple groups. More recently, Christian identity sects trace their roots to 19th century British Israelism. Christian identity radically and incorrectly reinterprets the Bible. These are... I'm just going to call out Christian identity extremists are the nut jobs that claim whites are, quote, the true children of Israel and God's chosen people. Okay, this is white Jesus. And I hate, well, I don't hate, I, the truth is there, what, there's no way Jesus was white. Not possible. And, um, you know, they just can't accept it. So they believe that whites are the true children of Israel and God's chosen people. Uh, Christian identity also believes that non-whites aren't really fully human and that they were created outside the line of descent from Adam and are, quote, mud people. Christian identity extremists also believe that Jews are the literal, I'm reading straight from this, Jews are the literal descendants of Satan, end quote. Um, these Christian identity extremists are so ignorant because, first of all, Jews don't believe in Satan. So, you know, the idea that they're literal descendants, it's insane, okay? But this is, these people, these, they have a need for white Jesus, and, you know, they're rewriting history in their own image, even though it's just a pack of lies, what they're saying. And in my opinion, there's nothing more dangerous than a religious extremist. 
but that's my opinion. Now, the third branch, the U.S. neo-Nazis, they uh, came from the American Nazi Party after World War II. They do embrace the uh, what Hitler embraced, the idea of racial purity ideology. White power skinheads, the fourth branch, they emerged in the U.S. during the 80s, um, but these groups all have this hatred in common. And they use symbols and rituals and coded language to hide their plans, to hide their criminal intent. And, you know, make no mistake about it, when we say WSM or white supremacist, uh, white supremacist movement, Nazis, whatever, they are all about a racist ideology. Um, they're racist, they're anti-Semitic, they're hostile towards immigrants, they're hostile towards any non-Christian religion, they're hostile towards social minorities and feminism and any white allies. Make no mistake about it. And when I say hostile, these people are preaching genocide. They're using coded language to evade the authorities, but that's what they're building up to. Make no mistake about it. Okay. So this comes back to also what happened this past week, the Rittenhouse trial, okay? And we witnessed a great injustice. You know, Kyle Rittenhouse got off scot-free. Not true, his victims were white, but in the white supremacist movement, they would his victims would be seen as white allies or I guess to use their language, quote, race traitors, end quote. Um, you know, we know that if Kyle Rittenhouse had been a young man or a woman of color, just showing up with a gun, he would have been shot down and killed immediately by police. All right. He got away with killing two people and seriously injuring a third. And how did he get away with it? If you notice, the judge, and this ties into white supremacism, because the Rittenhouse um, the Rittenhouse uh, um, decision, if you will, the acquittal, sends a green light message to white supremacists and neo-Nazis. And it's going to encourage, dangerously so, these bigots to show up with weapons blazing. Okay? Anywhere else, even if you have an open carry law, open carry doesn't mean that you can point a weapon at anybody you like. Carry is not the same thing as pointing at somebody. It just isn't. And Rittenhouse was running down and walking down the street, pointing his weapon, before all this happened, at people in the crowd. If the judge had been legitimate, the fact that Kyle Rittenhouse pointed his weapon indiscriminately at counter-protesters that, that were not part of the three he hurt, he should have been denied the right to a self-defense, um, a self-defense claim. And why, the reason I'm saying is that self-defense can only be used when you are not the one who provoked the fight in the first place. But if you point a weapon indiscriminately at somebody because you don't like them, whether you pull the trigger or not, that is provocation. Make no mistake about it. But besides that, and hopefully I'm not getting too far off the, the track, early on, the judge threw out 
a couple of other charges. And at the surface, they looked, you know, fairly benign, but they weren't. They weren't benign at all, okay? Um, and that was the illegal weapons charge, as well as uh, the fact that Rittenhouse had broken curfew, okay? But I'm looking at a piece written by Kimberly Whaley in the, in the Hill, and the title is Rittenhouse Verdict, What Counted as Self-Defense with Open Carry Firearms. And, you know, this goes on, and it explains, first of all, that Wisconsin is an open carry state. And then this author explains, shows the text of their disorderly conduct law, which it's kind of this, this weird contradiction. So Wisconsin has an open carry law, but they also have a disorderly conduct law. And the disorderly conduct law criminally bans, quote, violent, abusive, indecent, profane, boisterous, unreasonably loud, or otherwise disorderly conduct under circumstances in which the conduct tends to cause or provoke a disturbance, end quote. Okay. So in Wisconsin, apparently you can't be too loud, but you can open carry and get away with it. Um, think about that, you know, and that's what this writer is saying. Being publicly violent or abusive is a potential crime in, uh, or really just loud in Wisconsin, unless you're waving around a loaded firearm. Then it's allowed, okay, because of their open carry law. And so the self-defense law in Wisconsin, you know, the judge instructed the jury that they could find they had to find that Rittenhouse was author. Okay, let me back up a little bit. I'm going to read straight from this article. So the Wisconsin self-defense law, quote, the judge instructed the jury that if it can find that Rittenhouse was authorized to, quote, threaten or intentionally use force against another, only if three elements were are present. One, he believed that there was an actual or imminent unlawful interference with the defendant's person. Two, he believed that the amount of force the defendant used or threatened to use was necessary to prevent or terminate the interference. And three, the defendant's beliefs were reasonable. So, end quote. So in other words, Rittenhouse was legally allowed to use reasonable force to protect himself against actual or imminent harm. Okay. But we're, was the fact to use a semi-automatic rifle reasonable? Now, here, here's the thing, and this is the part you know, the jury, let, let me go to this. Okay, so the, the, this writer also explains, it's a little complicated here. Law school professor Cynthia Lee from the George Washington University Law School explained in Politico that, quote, even if Rittenhouse was justified in using force, if he provoked the decedent's use of the plastic bag and the skateboard in the first place, he could have lost the defense under Wisconsin law, Okay. For Huber, the provocation, that was the guy with the skateboard, or the argument that Rittenhouse was the initial aggressor was arguably stronger, you know, for Rosenbaum. So basically what, what this law professor is saying, two of the people that Rittenhouse killed, okay, uh, Rosenbaum threw a bag at him, but the bag was allegedly filled with socks and some other stuff. So it wasn't actually a lethal weapon. And Huber 
had his skateboard in his hand and was trying to take the weapon away from Rittenhouse. Rittenhouse was pointing wildly at all sorts of people. According to the law, if the judge had been legitimate, you know, if it was deemed that Rittenhouse provoked the actions of Hoover, for instance, then Rittenhouse would have been seen as committing a crime and he couldn't have used self-defense as, you know, to, to get out from under, if you will. And I don't know about any of you, but if someone points a semi-automatic weapon at me and I'm unarmed, yes, I consider that provocation. But apparently in this country, if you're a white boy, you can get away with it. But if you're a woman or a person of color, don't even look at them the wrong way. So this is something that we have to think about. The judge should never have allowed the self-defense argument. Um, the other two charges, the illegal weapons law, uh, illegal weapons charge, as well as breaking curfew, the judge tossed those once again because if Rittenhouse was found, especially on illegal weapons, to be guilty of that, guilty of wielding an, a weapon illegally as a minor, then he couldn't have claimed self-defense. So the judge had to toss it. Now the excuse, use the hunting exemption, okay. What was Kyle hunting? Okay, what was there, what? A bar, a bear, or a deer on top of Kyle, on top of Hoover's Anthony Hoover's head. What? What was he hunting? Doesn't work that way. And I, I'm shocked that the prosecution didn't report the judge for tossing those two um, charges. So we saw this this really horrible injustice this week, and we see a lot of the mainstream media claiming, well, the problem's the law. Yeah, that's true. They, Wisconsin has some really stupid laws that the GOP and their buddies at Alec helped formulate. But even then, it wasn't just that. They're trying to make it a legitimate trial when, in my opinion, it wasn't. Judge Schrader dismissed the count of possession of a dangerous weapon by a person under 18. Okay. And the defense was that Wisconsin law has an exception related to the length of a weapon barrel, okay? So if this had been a short, sawed-off machine gun, then, according to the judge, Kyle would have been breaking the law. But because he was using a more powerful weapon that just happened to be longer, it was okay. And totally ignoring the fact that Rittenhouse crossed state lines and he was a minor, illegally wielding a weapon. His age had something to do with it also. Again, when the judge threw out that charge, basically set the stage for the self-defense excuse. Because then they could say Kyle didn't provoke it, except for one thing, and that is Kyle was seen in the video walking down the streets before he killed these men, pointing his semi-automatic weapon at other people in the crowd. How is that not provocation? You mean to tell me that if somebody points an automatic or a semi-automatic weapon at you, that that's not provoking? 
And that's not the same as open carry. Open carry means, yes, you've got it in a holster, and you're walking down the street, and people can see you have a gun. Open carry does not mean that you're pointing the weapon at somebody. Open carry does not give you the right to point at somebody. And and Judge Schrader damn well knew it. So with that injustice going on, and then you add to it the absolutely stupid threats from Congressman Paul Gosar when he sent that tweet where it looked like a porn snuff film or his pornographic, uh, what, ideations were to murder AOC. And, yes, Paul Gosar was censored, censored and removed from committee. He should have been expelled. He should have been expelled from Congress. This is about the fact that white supremacists and neo-Nazis are getting bolder and bolder and we can expect the police to stand down. We know that the police are totally infiltrated by white supremacists and neo-Nazis. We know this already. But when the mainstream media, read corporate media, tries to normalize this and make excuses for it, that is inexcusable. It just is. So this is the rising tide invading our country and people need to wake up the reason these Nazis are getting bolder is because they like shooting fish in a barrel they figure we won't fight back or if we do it would just be with a skateboard and what neo-Nazis need to clearly understand is legally speaking this isn't a threat it's just a fact The Second Amendment is for all of us. We can arm up and use their phrase, what is it, lock and load, whatever the hell that means. We can arm up as easily as they can. And they need to know that because these white supremacists, neo-Nazis, aren't going to stop with talk. They are creating the excuse for open, not just open insurrection, for open genocide. And we need to not only convict these people, we need to incarcerate them for the rest of their lives. Just do. So this is what we've been dealing with in terms of growing neo-Nazism in the U.S. There's a lot of moderate white liberals, especially white liberal males, that think this might be hyperbole because, again, they can pass. People from communities of color, religious minorities and women in the LGBTQI community, we know better. And we need to convince these liberal moderates this is real. Okay? We need to have those uncomfortable conversations with alleged friends and even family where they are told, you either give up neo-Nazism or you are disowned. There is no excuse for this. None. Oh. Now we have the jackass report. And, you know, I had a hard time figuring out who was the, which individual, individuals or groups 
I was going to award the Jackass of the Week Award too. And I finally came up with it, the Wisconsin GOP, because they're the ones that authored the laws which really allowed a return of the Wild West, the events in Kenosha, and allowed a, frankly, intellectually challenged, definitely morally challenged young man like Kyle Rittenhouse to get away with murder. Okay, that's it. And I would urge people to um, call the Wisconsin uh, GOP, boycott their industries, you can just target one or two, and let the Wisconsin GOP know why. This is an instance where not claiming you're not a racist, for instance, isn't good enough. You must be anti-racist. And if you're not anti-racist, then we know what side you're on. And we will disown you, and if need be, we will fight you. And that's our show for tonight. Good night, and God bless us. <laughs>